This is Radiance Tape Number JD15, recorded on October 8, 1971. A message by Jim Durkin entitled Prosperity. Before we turn to the book of Proverbs, where most of these scriptures are that we'll study tonight, I want to once again reiterate that prosperity is not the same thing as me giving you ten easy lessons in becoming rich. The Bible does not teach anything to anybody about becoming rich. As a matter of fact, it warns us again and again that they who will be rich, in other words, that's their goal. They set that at becoming wealthy, rich. It says, pierce themselves through with many sorrows. The parable of the sower tells about one went into hard ground and says immediately the devil came and snatched the word away out of his heart. He didn't understand it, so that's the one that fell on hard ground. Another one, the Bible says, went into the rocky ground and said immediately the word of God sprung up, but when tribulation or persecution arose because of the word, immediately the plant withered because it had no depth of soil. So this is the one who fell on rocky ground. He had no strength within himself. Christ had not entered in in any real sense. The third class is the most pathetic of all, and it says this. It says this was the seed that was planted in weed-infested ground, and it says the word sprang up. But it said because of the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches, it choked the word so that it became unfruitful. In other words, it grew. The plant was there, but it never bore the purpose for which the plant was planted. What? That golden grain, which a person could eat and feast upon. Now, the fourth class, it mentions that the word was planted in good soil and it grew and brought forth 30, 60, and a hundredfold. So we're not talking about becoming rich. But I must reemphasize this again and again because so many people fail in this. They forget it. They don't hear it. Rich is an attitude of the mind. I want to accumulate. I want to get. I want to hold. The Bible preaches giving. The Bible preaches receiving. The Bible preaches a building up of wealth and the distribution thereof. Now, that distribution is the safety valve upon which everything else depends. Now, if our hearts are not right, we're going after money, don't listen to me. What I'm saying to you will hurt you. But if your heart is right, you've given it to God, your intention is to give, to do what the Bible tells you to do, then hear me tonight. Because God's plan is a perfect plan. It worked 4,000 years ago. It'll work at any time, anywhere. It is given the slightest opportunity to work. All right. Now... I want to show you how important this giving is and how important it is to put God's kingdom first. Now, the Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, that's the building of his kingdom, and his righteousness, that's that inner work of God within the man, and his righteousness to be spread abroad. Seek ye first these things, and then he said, all these things will be added unto you, material things. So my whole purpose in doing anything I do is to build holiness within myself, holiness in the world, and to build the kingdom of God everywhere. I have no interest in building this church. I have an interest in building the kingdom. As my interest is in building the kingdom, this church will take care of itself. It will build, provided I minister the word well and strong, and others are taught to do the same thing, and I do the thing that I'm supposed to do. Now, if I insist on keeping this pulpit to myself, the church probably will not grow. If I insist on taking the glory to myself, the church will not grow. If I make it in my own mind that I'm just going to build this church and I don't want the rest of the churches to have any of the blessing, it won't grow. 
Our attitude of mind must be that all churches and all of God's kingdom and all of God's people will grow and be blessed and be strengthened by the administration of the word. Now, that must be our attitude. The furthest reaches of our mind must reach out in giving if we expect any blessing of any kind at all. That's why I tell you, when you come to church, don't come and say, I'm going to go down there and hear a real sermon and get me a blessing. Don't ever do that. It's backwards. Come to church to be a blessing. Come to church to give me something. And you know what happens when you come to church to give me something? You enable me to give you something. We minister to each other. You come here and your faces are smiling and you get in, you sing as unto the Lord and you support me with your prayers. And I stand up and I begin to minister and it just pours out. All right. Now, turn with me, please, to the book of Haggai. I'll show you this principle. It's not just New Testament. All through the whole Bible. Nothing really ever changes in principle. The Bible says God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Haggai 1, 4. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying... Now here's the word of the Lord that came. In other words, God now is speaking to the prophet, and he's telling the prophet to speak to the people. Here's what he's saying. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now, in other words, the Lord's house was broken down. The temple was broken down, it was ruined, and the people were saying, The time is not come to build the Lord's house. Now, what time was it in their mind? All right, let's see. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Speaking of the temple. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Now what does it really say? These people were saying it's not yet time to give. It's time to what? To get. And to keep. And to take. And God's saying you're backwards. That won't work. The simple principle of God is give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, shaken down, heaped up, pressed down, running over, shall men give into your bosom. So the whole principle of any accumulation we have is for the purpose of entering into the ministry of giving. Now that doesn't mean your goods won't increase, because they will. They'll increase by a natural law, and it cannot help but be that way. You must literally keep giving to keep them from increasing. I'll show you how this works after a while and how God worked it with the Israelites. But let me finish reading here. Thus saith the Lord, now we're at the seventh verse, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. And I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye look for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. 
And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. And then it goes on to tell that the people rose up and began to build the work of God. All right, now my constant message to you folks from the very beginning is that our job is to build the kingdom of God. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, any needs that you have will be met. If you have in your mind this conscious idea that you have but one purpose, to build holiness upon the earth, holiness in your life, and to reach as many people as you can for the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we said it this way, growth, outreach, at the same time. Now, this has always been a principle that I tried to teach to you. Along with it, I taught the necessity of the three prosperities. That it's God's will for you to prosper, the Bible says, and be in health even as your soul prospers. In other words, that God wants you to prosper physically. He wants your body to be well. He wants you to prosper spiritually. He wants you to live in victory over sin. And he wants you to prosper materially. That is, he wants to bless you with material goods that you may enter into the ministry of giving. By living above sin... You're able to give of the spiritual force of God. By living above sickness, you're able to labor abundantly in the work of God. By living in financial victory, you're able to give of the material things that are necessary to build the kingdom of God. And God wants these three prosperities in every Christian's life. God has designed them to be there, and he wants them to be there. Now, how come they're not there? Many people are not living above sin. Many people are not well. Many people are not prosperous. Because they have not set their goals so that they are the same as God's goals for their life. And all kinds of people, you say, well, here's what God wants for you. They say, well, I don't really want that in my life. I don't really want that. And now here's what I want. Now, do you see as long as our purposes are against and contrary to the purposes of God, how the church becomes strapped? We must want. I must want, you must want, for ourselves, what God wants for us. It is up to me to change my thinking until my thinking lines up with God's thinking. And not for me to know what God thinks and say, well, that's nice that you think that, Lord, but here's what I think. God is not interested in what I think. He says, my ways are not his ways. And his ways are as high above my ways as the sky is above the earth. His ways are different from our ways. My ways, self-centered. My ways, to get what I want. But what God wants of me is to adapt my thinking so that my thinking disappears and the mind of Christ takes over in me and I think the thoughts of Christ himself. And that's what Paul said in the Phillips. He says, as incredible as it may sound, we think the thoughts of Christ. And that's what God wants in our lives. Now, Let's see what the Bible has to say on this remarkable subject. Remarkable, I say, because most people don't understand it at all. They have no concept of what God's talking about. I'd like you now to turn to the book of Proverbs. And I want to show you how God links up the words work, righteousness, prosperity, and he links up the words sloth, sluggard, sin, and poverty. Ties them up all together. Then when I get into how to prosper, then I'm going to really cause a riot, because I'm going to tell you something that's really going to shake you up good. 
Turn with me now to Proverbs, the third chapter, verse 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with thy substance, and with the firstfruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. Now, honor the Lord with... What does the firstfruits mean? Yes, as soon as you get it, here it is. Now, you've gotten something. What is the first thing your mind does? All right. You're holding something that the Lord has given you. Let's say he's placed this in your hand and it's something of value. Let's say it's a box of money. What should you immediately do and look at that? Say, look what I got. Wow. Right? Say, I recognize, Father, that this is what you placed in my hands. And now, Father, with the first fruits of this, I honor you, Lord of all heaven and earth. Now, in the Old Testament, we'll see in the book of Malachi, it talks about tithing. The New Testament is not that principle at all. Tithing is not a New Testament principle. It's an Old Testament principle, although it's a good guideline and a good one to follow. But the New Testament principle, as diverse from the Old, the Old Testament principle was that God required 10%, called a tithe. Actually, if you study the Old Testament carefully, it's probably between 20 and 30% that he required when all the tithe of the tithe and the second tithe and the third tithe were in, probably somewhere between 20 and 30, depending on how you look at it. But when they brought this money to God, the balance that was left was theirs. See, this is God's, this is mine. But the New Testament was a different principle. The New Testament principle is a principle of stewardship. That everything that we have is God's. And we are managers over what God has given to us. And we're to manage it well for the upbuilding of his kingdom. Now, for instance, this church, who does it belong to? It belongs to us, right? Wrong. It belongs to God. See? Now here, I have a car. It says right on the car, registered in the name of James Durkin. My car, right? Whose car? God's car. Now, if you can understand that, if you can understand you own nothing, that's what God says. Now, many people in this world say, well, don't tell me I don't own it. I work for it, man. With these hands, I work for it. And I put out a lot of work on that car. And I tell you, I do own it. These hands have strength only because God gives them strength. And this heart beats only because God gives it life. And this brain thinks only because God gives it thought. And the minute that he removes one tiny little bit, at that moment, this body crumples, and I am no more. Whatever you have, the Bible said, you have received it. And if you have received it, why do you act as though you had not received it? Here's a man with a brilliant mind. And he said, well, buddy, I got where I got because I got a brain I can think. Did that man come into the world with no brain? And he went around someplace and he said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go around and get me a brilliant brain. Ah, he put all the pieces together and stuck it in there. Or did God give him a gift of a brilliant mind? It was the gift of God that he had a brilliant mind. Or he has strong arms or skillful. Now, truly, a person who's developed a skill has also developed a skill. And a person should have credit for the development that they have done. But without that divine talent, and divine coordination. You take a man that becomes a skillful surgeon, and he says, oh, how skillful I have become. If God had not placed into him that remarkable super degree of coordination, that ability between eye and hand and brain to work, 
that ability of coolness or whatever else had to be there so that he could develop it. That man could never have been a surgeon. And all that has to happen, if he doesn't think that's right, is for God to touch one part of that body and that extremely steady hand begin to... And he's all finished. All of the years of work, all of the labor, all of the training, all of the brain, all of the knowledge, it's done. And this practice has come to an end because of just that. That's all it takes. Just a slight tremor in his hand and he's all finished. He no longer can make the delicate incision close to the vital part. He made and the person is dead and he's finished. Whatever you have, it has been and is the gift of God. Recognize that it belongs to God. Recognize that your body is God. Recognize that your property is God. Everything that you ever will have, it belongs to God. And give it to Him totally, completely, and absolutely. And hereafter, think of yourself only as a manager of God's property. You own nothing. You own nothing. And what a remarkable freedom that is. Oh, hallelujah. Just totally free. You may have $50 billion worth of property. And it has no hold upon you at all. It has no hold upon you. That's what Frank was talking about. He was afraid if he got something that he would become an oppressor. That's when money has you. That's when money has you. But if God has you, then you can have money and you'll only give it for the glory of God or do what you have to do with it to build up his kingdom. All right. Now turn with me, please, to Proverbs, the sixth chapter, and start with verse six. And I'm going to read from the sixth to the eleventh. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Which, having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. Now, she's providing her meat in the summer. She's providing more than she needs. All right. 6 to 11. Let me read it to you, please. Eighth verse now. Provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? You know why they call it a sluggard? Where that word come from, sluggard? From a slug, that's right. You've ever watched a slug? You'll never see the slightest move. That's right. And finally, if you watch for an hour and a half or two hours, he sometimes will move from this position to this position. Okay, now let me read it, now that you understand what a sluggard is. All right. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands asleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. All right. Now turn with me, please. Proverbs, the eighth chapter, and the fourteenth verse. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me kings reign, and princes decree justice. By me princes rule, and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Now he's talking here about wisdom. Counsel is mine, wisdom. If you read it back, you'll see that's what he's discussing. I love them that love me, and all those that seek me early shall find me. Riches and honor are with me, yea, durable riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I lead in the way of righteousness, in the midst of the paths of judgment, that I may cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I will fill their treasures. Now, the Bible here is linking wisdom, God's divine wisdom, 
and material blessing together. You'll find this all through the Bible. Those who did received. The parable of the talents is simply a restatement of the same basic principle. Now, let's turn to, please, the 10th chapter, verse 4. He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. If you want to get the job done, what kind of a hand should you apply to your labors? That's what these muscles are for. Amen. If there's a load to lift, get down there and plant your feet where they need to be. Get your hands bit into the metal or the thing that you have to do and begin to heave at that load until you can move that thing where you want that load to be put. Now, the Bible says at this fourth verse, if we deal with a slack hand, we will become poor. The Bible says, but the hand of the diligent shall be made rich. Fifth verse, he that gathereth in summer is a wise son, but he that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causeth shame. Fifteenth verse of the same chapter. The rich man's wealth is his strong city, but the destruction of the poor is their poverty. Did you know that verse was there? See, some people are proud of their poverty. They say, I'm poor and I'm proud of it. Don't be proud of being poor. Be proud of being honest. Being proud of having integrity. But being poor is nothing to be proud of. God does not want you poor. Now, I know this offends some people. I know they don't like it. But by the grace of God, I must preach what the Word of God says. And the Bible says the destruction of the poor is their poverty. You can get out of it. By practicing the Word of God in your life, you can come out of it, be able to stand on your feet, become a giver, become an administrator of God's kingdom, instead of one that just sits with your hand constantly out and say, I wish somebody would give me something. And I'll tell you something, the poor are not proud of their poverty because they're constantly talking about what they need. I need this, I need that, I wish I had some money for this, I wish I had some money for that, I certainly need this, I need that, I need... They're not happy with their condition. They're desperately miserable with that condition. It is not a natural condition. God never intended it to be a natural condition. Jesus himself said, the poor you have with you always, but me you have not always. Making himself different from the poor. He became poor for our sakes. But Jesus is not poor. He owns the gold and the silver and the cattle on a thousand hills and all of the universe. All of it. It's his. And what does he want to do with it? He wants to place it in our hands to build up his kingdom if we'll give him that chance. All right, let's read a little bit further. I hope you're taking some of these verses down. You ought to take them home when you get home and read them. 26, as vinegar to the teeth and as smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to them that send him. Chapter 11, verse 24. There is that scattereth and yet increaseth. Here's a man that's giving now. And yet the Bible says he increases. That's a divine law, by the way. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, heaped up, pressed down, running over, will men give into your bosom. The increase will come as you give. And there is that withholdeth more than his meat. In other words, he doesn't give, and it tendeth to poverty. 25th verse. The liberal soul shall be made fat, and he that watereth shall be watered also himself. Verse 28. He that trusteth in his riches shall fall, but the righteous shall flourish as a branch. Verse 29, he that troubleth his own house shall inherit the wind, and the fool shall be servant to the wise of heart. Now, what is the Bible trying to tell us with these two verses? He that trusteth in his riches. 
Now, is this a statement by God that he doesn't want anyone to have this world's goods? What does it say? What does he want you to trust in? Let me show you that this is not right. He says, woe be unto them that go down to Egypt for soldiers. In other words, he was talking to the Israelites. And he said to the Israelites who went down and made a league with Egypt and trusted in them. Woe be unto them that go down to the Egyptians. Woe be unto them that trust in horses. Now, here's the same wording practically as this scripture. The Bible says, he that trusted in his riches is going to have problems. He that trusted in a horse is going to have problems. If you can take this scripture that says, he that trusted in his riches is going to have trouble. Here's another scripture that says, he that trusted in a horse is going to have trouble. If you can interpret this over here to mean that you should not have any money, then what does it mean about horses? Is God against horses? How about mules? Okay. Now turn to the 12th chapter and verse 9. He that is despised and hath a servant is better than he that honoreth himself and lacketh bread. How do you like that one? All right, let me read it over again. He that is despised and hath a servant is better than he that honoreth himself and lacketh bread. 11th verse, he that tilleth his land shall be satisfied with bread, but he that followeth vain persons, empty it means, vain persons is void of understanding. 14th verse, a man shall be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, and the recompense of a man's hand shall be rendered unto him. In other words, if he works with his hands, he's going to get the reward of doing it. Verse 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. Now, the Bible is carrying this right on down the line. The Bible is trying to teach us that there are a good many men whose minds and mentalities are set against the purposes of God. God is saying, I want to prosper you so you can build my kingdom. These men say, I don't want to prosper. The Bible says a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man hearkens unto counsel, and I counsel you to hearken unto what God has to say to us and begin to build that kingdom according to his plan. All right? Verse 24, the 12th chapter. The hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. 27. The slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. And I'll give you an example from the New Testament. What did Jesus do? He had 5,000 people to feed besides women and children. And there was brought to him five little loaves and two little fishes from a boy that had a lunch. Jesus took these things and by a miracle he multiplied them so it fed the 5,000 people besides the women and children that were there. And we got all finished. Remember it didn't cost Jesus one cent to multiply that bread and fish. He just simply break it like that. And they just Not a cent did it cost. He didn't charge anybody for it. It didn't cost him anything. And yet when he got done, he gave his disciples a peculiar order. He said, gather it up that there be not a fragment lost. Gather it up. Now I'm telling you something. It bothers me when I see food wasted. It bothers me when I see clothes wasted. It bothers me when I see money wasted. It bothers me when I see anything thrown away or frittered away or fooled away. Because the Bible says the substance of a diligent man is precious. But the slothful man, he throws everything away. And then he wonders why he's poor. And then when he is poor, he brags about being poor. There's nothing to brag about in that. It's a wasting of the thing that God has placed in your hand. And the Bible says this. 
If we are unjust in the unrighteous man, which represents money, the Bible says, who will commit unto our trust the true riches? Now, do we want the gifts of the Spirit poured out in this church? We want the mighty power of God moving in this church? I tell you something, friends, you can test yourself how close you are to being ready for those gifts of the Spirit and those powers of the Spirit by how careful you handle that which God places in your hand of a material nature. If you're wasteful of it, if you're squandering of it, if you don't care anything about it at all, that is contrary to the purpose of God in your life. And you must learn to be thrifty and to be careful. Now, I'm not talking about being stingy. I'm talking about giving with a, an abundant hand. Oh, give for the glory of God. But don't waste it. Because when you waste it, you don't have it to give. You've nearly wasted it. And you're making somebody else rich. Because when God sees us being careful and taking the things that are in our hands and using them in a careful way, then God says, that person can be trusted with the wherewithal to build my kingdom. He's not going to squander it, and he's not going to fritter it away. Proverbs 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. Now, that's similar to a scripture that we've read before with one little variation to it. It says the soul of the sluggard desireth. Now, believe me, I've seen people who wouldn't work, and they were constantly saying, I wish I had. They wouldn't work. But they said, boy, I sure wish I had better food. I sure wish I had better clothes. Why doesn't somebody do something about this problem? I sure wish I had a cleaner bedroom. I sure wish I... Most of those things could be remedied by what method? Sure, just get up and go to work. Take care of it very simply, very easily. The Bible doesn't have much to say about a slothful man or a sluggard, except bad things to say. But he has a whole lot of good things to say about the diligent, hard-working man and woman. As a matter of fact, I say to you that God placed work in the Garden of Eden long before man had ever sinned. The Bible says God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, this beautiful garden with fruits and herbs and wonderful things all over. And he gave them a command. They were to do what? To dress it and to keep it. My, don't you know, did that fruit grow on the trees? And then what would happen to the fruit when it got a certain size? Fall off. Right. You see, there was work to do even in the garden. They didn't have the weeds fighting them, and they didn't have to fight that kind of problem. But they did have a problem with things that grew, and something had to be done with it. They were to dress the garden, and they were to keep it. And God had planned that to take place, and even in the beginning, man would have useful, important work to do. And no man can long function well who refuses to work. They become aberrated and twisted out of shape. Work is a necessary part and parcel of man's whole growth. And when he learns how to direct it, it's tremendous what can be accomplished by a group of people with a common vision who work for that common vision. Eighth verse. The ransom of a man's life are his riches, but the poor heareth not rebuke. In other words, the poor doesn't hear that. They say, oh, well, somehow it'll be all right. No, it won't be all right. It won't be all right. It says the prudent see trouble coming and they protect themselves, but the foolish pass on and are punished for it. They don't hear what the Bible is actually saying. 18th verse of the same chapter, Poverty and shame shall be to him that refuseth instruction, but he that regardeth reproof shall be honored. 22nd verse, A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. 23rd verse, much food is in the tillage of the poor, but there is that that is destroyed for want of judgment. And here again is an important part. What the Bible is saying here, there's much food in the tillage of the poor, 
But you also need something more than that. You need good business sense in order to be able to hang on to it. Now, a good many people go out and work, and they get money, but they've never learned how to budget their money. And the minute they get a dollar in their pocket, what's the first thing they have to do with it? Run right down and spend it. Whereas they ought to stop with that dollar. Stop and say, Lord, this is your gift to me. And I tell you something, the minute that you would actually stop and say that, something would come in me and say, then use it carefully. This is your gift to me, Lord. What would you have me do with it? Here's the first truth to you, Lord. Now, the balance of it, show me how to use it well. We say, well, now, let's see what should be done with this money. And our whole attitude toward it would change. We would begin to use it instead of abuse it. See what I'm talking about? There's an art to learning these things. It's in the Bible. If you study, the Bible says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The righteous eateth to the satisfying of his soul, but the belly of the wicked shall want. 14th chapter, verse 4. Where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increases by the strength of the ox. How many of you would like to clean up an ox crib? You know what an ox crib is? That's where the ox lives. And he gets manure all over the thing, he tramples into it and smears it all around and eats and some of it spills on the ground, he gets that all trampled in and you have to clean up the ox crib. How many of you would like that job? Well, I wouldn't like that job. I wouldn't. You would like that? Well, some, some would because they like working around animals. But I wouldn't like it. I wouldn't like it. But if I had a farm, now this is back before the days of tractors. If I had a farm, I'd make sure I had an ox. Much increase is by the strength of the oxen. Now, can you imagine me? Here I get out in the morning and I say, boy, I'm sure glad. I get out there and I go to my ox crib. See, I got rid of my ox. I got tired of cleaning up that mess. And so I got rid of that guy. Man, he's a real pest. And so on Saturday night, I got rid of him. And Monday morning, I'm ready now to go out and plow my field. And I walk out there and there's my fine, clean crib. And I look at it and I say, boy, Durkin, you really pulled a smart one this time. Look at that clean crib. No more cleaning up of dirty ox cribs. You've really done it this time. Wonderful. So then I go out there and I get in the field. I get on my plow and I, I barrel down to it and I go, oh, boy, boy. Let's get the ox back. You know, that's what work is sometimes like. That I get up in the morning and pull an old dirty work shirt on. Take the shower, that's okay. Pull an old dirty work shirt on, old dirty pants on, old dirty shoes, and go out and work hard for the day. And I come home and I'm dirty and smelly. I take another shower, that takes care of all of it. I put on my clean clothes and I walk out. But at the end of the week, I have a paycheck. 14th chapter, 4th verse. Okay, we read the 4th. 20th verse now. The poor is hated even of his own neighbor, but the rich have many friends. 23rd. In all labor there is profit, but the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury. 28th verse, in the multitude of people is the king's honor, but in the want of people is the destruction of the prince. Have you ever heard people say, brother, all we want is just a nice little small church where there's a few of us that have the same thoughts together and the same mind, and we can all come and worship the Lord all together. And Have you ever heard anybody say that? That's wrong. How large a church do we want? Well, I'll tell you how large I'd want one extending all the way from Eureka to China and back again. That's right. I want one that's worldwide, and that's what God has ordained to build. But you know how we can help him build it? By letting him prosper us to get on with the work.
Do you think God wants, you think he's taking time to tell you he wants you to prosper? Oh, how much he's trying to tell you he wants you to prosper. It's so necessary to the upbuilding of the kingdom. Now let's stand together and ask God's blessing on this service so far. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the divine revelation of your word. Lord, our eyes are blinded to truth and Satan could trick us so easily. He could deceive us and lie to us and we're taken up in his lies. But Lord, when we read your word with an open heart, your message comes out loud and clear and sounds out to us. Now, Father, I pray for every person in this church that they grasp the vision of what we're talking about. Lord, and they begin to lay themselves to the task that is before them, the upbuilding of the kingdom of God and the seeking after God's righteousness. And Lord, to take that which you give unto us and begin to build this kingdom on every hand. Lord, dismiss us now with your blessing, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The name of this message is the prosperity of the godly. Deuteronomy 8, 17, 18. Now, I'll turn to it in just a moment, but I want to read the basic aim of this section. Is the righteous prosper because of the blessing of God? Now, remember, the blessing of God is what produces prosperity for the Christian. We cannot do as the unsaved do. We cannot manipulate and trick. We cannot deceive and lie. We cannot pull off things. Now, however, I do want to be hasty, to, quick to say this, that many of the unsaved do not do those things either. They prosper because they act out very right principles. But in many people's minds, the idea is there that people who are not saved prosper because they do tricky things. Some do tricky things. They normally get caught up sooner or later and they go to pieces as a result of that. However, some do prosper, the Bible says, by bringing wicked devices to pass. For instance, a dictator of a country would take over the country, oppress people. He will grow very wealthy, maybe as a result of that, if he doesn't get killed. But in terms of prospering, outward aggrandizement or wealth, it would seem that he is prospering. But the majority of people who prosper, prosper for very definite right reasons. Now, so the righteous prosper, and I want to deal strictly with the righteous here today, they prosper because of the blessing of God. Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18 reminds us of where the blessing comes from. And I'm reading here, Otherwise you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Now, two or three things are important to look at here. Number one, the Bible says, as we begin to prosper, a very real danger begins to take place in our lives. Satan comes along and says, are you not magnificent? Here you are prospering, and you're doing this as a result of the power of your own hand. You're very wise, you're very clever, you're very smart. And if we're not careful, we'll actually begin believing those things, and believe that it is our own wisdom, our own power, our own strength, which has caused us to prosper. And God is very quick to say, do not get caught up with that. That is not what causes you to get wealth. Then it goes on to say, it is God who gives thee the power to get wealth. He keeps your brain functioning, your hands strong, you're able to think and to be emotionally sound. That is what causes you to prosper, not your own cleverness. Now, that does not mean... We should not study and master our trade or our business, our profession. We should be the best of what we can be. But you can be the best of everything that you could be. 
You could no more than Solomon himself, and if God's blessing was not on your life, then you would still not prosper. If he did not allow you to prosper, it'd be impossible for us to prosper. So, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. Now, the next point I want to make, I'm reading it right here, that he may confirm his covenant. You understand from this scripture, you should take it and read it, that the power to grow prosperous is a part of God's covenant toward his people. This is one of the things that's very difficult for me to understand, though I was caught up in the trap many years myself. And the idea is that Christians, good Christians, should be poor. And the poorer you are, that's a sign of the better and better Christian that you really are. There is nothing in Scripture that ever indicates anything like this at all. There's nothing in Scripture that says, if you do what God says, you'll be rich. But it definitely says over and over, you will prosper. And it makes the reason why you will prosper, because of the covenant which God has made with his people. And he wants to confirm that covenant to us and bless us. Now, it's a strange thing that on the one hand, you will sit down with a Christian group, let's say, depending on what their basic understanding of the Word of God is. And you will say, well, it would be a good idea if you would, uh, like, build something like this or add this division or cause something to grow here or uh, make it. And they will say, well, we don't have the money to do that. Well, I say, in my mind, see, I want to say this. I never do because I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings unless I have an opportunity to teach. But what I really want to say is, why do you mention the word money? Because if God didn't want you to have money, and he has commanded us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, to establish churches, to build congregations, to send people to the ends of the earth, to fill the whole earth with his glory, to just broadcast his name abroad and everywhere, to print literature and publish the gospel. That's what he's commanded us to do. If that did not take money, see, in other words, God wants us poor. But on the other hand, God says, I want you poor. I don't want you to have any money. I want you to be really good Christians. The poorer you are, the better you will be. And on the other hand, I want you to do all these things. So then, something here is an impossibility. If God wants me to have no money, but all of these things cost money, something is wrong here. Either God will have to counterfeit it in heaven and drop it down on me, or he will have to cause other people who evidently are not under that stricture to remain poor, they must go out and prosper and bring the money in so I can remain poor and yet do all of the things that God is telling me to do. See, now, when you really begin thinking about it, you say, well, that's ridiculous. Of course God would want us to have money because it takes money to do these things here. See, any time that I have to go to another city, there are examples in the Bible where God literally has picked people up and translated them through the air and they ended up 15 miles away. But he has never done that for me. Not even when I wave my arms like this, nothing happens. I stand there. And if I want to go to that city, I must either get in a car, which takes money to buy the car, put gas in it, which takes money, put oil in it, which takes money, tires, which takes money, drive down there, eat on the way, sleep on the way, and so forth. Not in the car, but on the way, depending on how far it is. All of it takes money. So I've come to a very simple conclusion. God wants me to prosper, see? And then when I read it's also part of his covenant, I say, all right, Lord. Then I see that you're making it a very important part of Christian experience that we should then prosper. See, now you need to clear your mind of the cobwebs that would hold you in a place where we cannot do the work of God that we really wish to do. All right, so I read this again. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power. 
Now, why would he give you power to do something he doesn't want you to do? See, again, we just get ourselves in these funny boxes as Christians. God said, I'm giving you power to get well. Well, I wish you hadn't have done it, Lord, because I know you want me to stay poor. Well, see, again, the whole thing, impossible. He is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Now, I put here the righteous prosper because of the blessing of God. Next point, who are the righteous? Well, 1 John 3, 7 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Now, who are the righteous? The ones who have received Jesus Christ into their heart, and they are practicing his teachings. So if you see a person here has received Christ in their heart and say, the love of God has come into my heart, then they practice loving their brothers and sisters, they practice loving their enemies, they practice loving their neighbors, they practice loving everyone, the unsafe. They love, they care, they do good works, they follow after the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. The righteous, the Bible says, let no one deceive you. The man who is righteous practices righteousness. See, it isn't like I do all these hellish things, but I'm righteous because I belong to a church, or I'm righteous because I spoke the credo, or I'm righteous because I believe. We are righteous because we've received Jesus, and as a result of it, we practice righteousness. In other words, we practice honesty, we practice integrity, we practice love, we practice right living, we practice right thinking, we practice right speaking. We practice those things, and we do not have a secret life over here where we practice sin. If we practice sin, the Bible says that man is a sinner. See, no other way about it. If I practice sin, I'm a sinner. If I practice righteousness, I'm what? Say it. I'm righteous. Now say it. Righteous. See, that's the word. Practice righteousness, you are righteous. If you do not, then you are not. Now, second point. What is the blessing of God that produces prosperity? Well, number one, they have received Jesus Christ as their Lord. Now, not just Savior. They've gone beyond that first step. See, when I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior, that makes sure my sins are forgiven, that transforms my inner life, I am saved. See, here I was going down this wrong road which leads to destruction. Now Jesus has come into my heart, my sins are forgiven, and I am saved. But here I am like, now what do I do? Where do I go? What do I do? What do I say? Well, Jesus Christ is not only Savior, he is Lord. And Lord means ruler and master. He's the one to whom we look for direction and for guidance. He's the one who wrote the Word of God. He's the one who directs our life. So we make Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the guide of their life through the Holy Spirit. They seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They seek for and desire to be always filled with the Holy Spirit. So they are not unspiritual people. They are spiritual people. They desire to be filled with God's presence and with God's Spirit. Next point, they carefully read the Word of God. They lay these things to heart and practice the truth in everyday life. They believe the promises of God, and they act upon those promises. Very important to understand that prosperity does not come out of the blue. It does not just happen because you are a Christian. I'm talking about a general prosperity of life. That is to prosper materially, to prosper physically, that is to be in health, and to prosper mentally and emotionally, that is our soulish area, and to prosper overall in the spiritual area. These things do not happen simply because you go to church. They don't happen simply because you are a Christian. They don't happen simply because you're a Christian for a long period of time. They happen as a result of you cooperating 
with God. The Lord has given me some interesting examples concerning myself. This last one is weight loss. Now, in order to gain that weight loss, over the years, I've had different people, well-meaning, really a good heart, come to me and say, I believe God has given me the answer to your weight problem. Here I weighed a great deal. Many of you know who have been around for some time. Some of you may be newer. And I weighed a great deal, much more than I do now. In any event, these people would lay hands on me, again, in sincerity and honesty, and they would rebuke the fat cells, and they would rebuke the fat demon, and they would rebuke the fat, so forth and so on. But I never lost weight. I kept on gaining weight. See, it was not a question at all. Oh, boy, just I loose you fat cells in the name of Jesus and they all disappear. Any more than simply being a Christian, God will counterfeit money in heaven and drop it down on our head. He doesn't do that either. If I am emotionally unsound, just simply being a Christian doesn't make me emotionally sound. It is the practice of the Word of God. So when I got with the people who were helping me, which includes Jim Singh here and uh, his wife and others and so forth, which helped me along, and the elders, which were such a help to me over the years in uh, helping me and instructing me and encouraging me and praying for me, you folks, how you stood behind us and worked with us. But until I actually began to personally cooperate with God. Now, God always wants us healthy. God always wants us in good physical shape or the other things as well. But until we personally enter into a cooperative relationship to God, though he wants it, though we may want it, though our friends may want it, though they may in sincerity pray for us, it simply does not happen until we enter into the practice, the personal practice of God's word. We must cooperate with God in the attainment of any good and noble spiritual goal. So understand that it is not something that happens like it is miraculous, when it happens, but it's the result of God changing us so we begin to walk in his ways and do the things which he has called us to do. Very vital understanding has to be there. They carefully read the word of God, and then they lay these things to heart, practice the truth in everyday life, they believe the promises of God, and act upon them. Now, if you would turn with me to Joshua, the first chapter. God evidently wants his servant Joshua to prosper. And he wants the people of Israel to prosper. And he tells him, and it's really good reading for us, first chapter, sixth verse, be strong and courageous. It takes a decision to be strong and courageous. I will no longer. See, many times you hear people and they constantly confess things like, well, I'm just weak. Now, if they're saying I am weak in myself, that's one thing. But if they're saying as a Christian I am weak, they're making a wrong confession. In Jesus Christ, I am not weak in Christ. I am strong because he gives me strength. I am able to do anything through the Lord Jesus Christ, anything that I have to do. So he says to Joshua, I am with you, Joshua. See, there's the key. Not be strong by yourself. You're going to fall. But I am with you, Joshua. Therefore, be strong and courageous. Yes, Lord, you're with me. I will be strong because you are with me. See, that kind of testimony. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Now, to do what? See, like, be strong and very courageous, pick up your sword and run across and fight. No, no. Here's what he says to be strong and courageous in. Because this is what takes courage. This is what takes strength. This is not easy to do. It takes someone who will take hold of the power of God and determine to do it. Let me show you what it is. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. 
That's what we need to be strong to do. When the Bible says love your enemies, be strong and love your enemies. When the Bible says do good, be strong and do good. Don't get discouraged. Be not weary, the Bible says. In well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. See, that's what we faint in. We don't faint in like some, here's the big battle, let's go out there and hit swords with each other. That isn't where we fail. We fail in the basic area of life doing what God tells us to do. Be strong and courageous and do my word. Now, going on reading here, as my, Moses my servant, do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success, have not I commanded you. See, it's all tied up with being strong and courageous to do God's Word. What is the Word telling me to do? Lord, I will do it. The thing that transformed my life some 30 years ago, when my wife and I were separated, divorced. No chance of getting back together as far as any earthly thing that we knew. I was out of the ministry. I was finished. I was working in a sawmill and not doing too well at that, working as a janitor in a sawmill, and all hope was cut off. Got down and remonstrated with God. Why, God, is this happening to me? I know you're real, but you're not real to me. You say this, but it doesn't happen. Then God says behind everything in my word, you've added three words of your own. Those words are, but we know. But we know... Here, I'm preaching. And the Bible says this, but we know. You can't really do that. You must be this way. And, and the Bible says this, but we know this isn't true in our day. And it was this hap And I literally did away with the Bible and substituted my own personal thinking for it. No wonder I was where I was. I was not prospering. I was not in health. My emotions were not sound. And spiritually, I was in the pits. Now, what changed it? God said, henceforth, I want you to do my word. Even if you don't understand it, do it. And in the doing of it, you'll come to know what it means. And I rose up from that place and said, God, help me. I'm going to read this book again, and I'm going to do what's written in the book by your grace. And if I blunder and make a mistake, teach me from it, Lord, and I'll get up and try it again. I'll keep on trying it until it's pleasing to you. And the result of it is my wife and I are back together, and God gave us a ministry and a people to work with and a work to do, and the blessing of the Lord has never stopped from that time until this time. See, this is what we need to be strong and courageous. If it had been somebody, okay, Jim, I'm out here, and we're going to have a fist fight out here. Oh, I was uh, handled. Oh, well, I'll walk right out here, and we'll have a little... See, that isn't what he's speaking about. He's speaking about strong and courageous to stand up to the temptations of the devil and the pressures of life and do what God's Word tells us to do. That's the secret of success. Then he says, you do that, no man will stand before you all the days of your life. I will be with you, says God. Say, hallelujah. All right, next point. They honor God continually. Honor is very important to God. You know, well, what's God need all that honor for? Because he deserves all that honor, and it's the only thing that keeps us in the right relationship to life itself. If I put God in his right place, everything else is in its right place. Let me read this. God is speaking to the nation of Israel. They were in real trouble here, and they were remonstrating. Why, God, haven't you done this, and why haven't you met our needs just like I was so many years ago? And God speaks to them. Malachi 1.6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Saith the Lord of hosts to you who despise my name. See, 
I make sure I honor God. I honor God with my lips. I honor God with my life. I honor God with my money. I honor God with my time. I make sure He's first in everything I do. I think of Him number one, number one, number one, number one, number one. I honor God. He is my Father. He gets honor. He is my Master. He deserves respect and He receives respect. I counsel you today. Think over these points. It would be a wise idea to get this particular outline. Go over in your life. If there are things happening in your life and they're not successful, not blessed, not as it should be, go over in these things and say, oh, I'm not doing that. Oh, there's another one I'm not. There's another one. And make up your mind by the holy God above. Call on Him for His strength. Ask Him for courage. Make a decision to be courageous. And do what His Word tells you to do. The result will be the unending blessing of God will rest upon your life. Next thing, they honor God continually. How? By their prayers, they show dependency and trust to God and in God. Prayer is a very important part of our life. We ought to pray over nearly everything. Lord, help me in the work that I am to do today. Bless this food, Lord. I thank you for it. Bless me in my relationships with these people. I ask you to bless my wife today. Bless my children today. Bless my husband today. Bless my... We need to continually be praying to God. Uh, here's a formal prayer. We need that kind of prayer too. But I'm not talking about that alone. See, many people get that in their mind. They say, well, I'm not like praying hide. I can't pray 16 hours straight. and Therefore, I don't pray at all. Pray all day long. See, just make it a point in prayer. I'm going to take a walk today. Bless my walk, O oh Lord. I'm going to sit down here to eat. Bless when I speak to people. Bless today. I'm going to meet this person for coffee. I'm going to... See, make sure that you're inviting God into every prayer. I honor you, Lord. I honor you by my prayers, my trust, my dependency. If you don't help us, O oh Lord, we have no hope. Help me, O oh Lord. And when you honor God like that, He responds powerfully to your life. Hallelujah. Next point. They honor God by their gratitude and their praise. They see the world from God's perspective. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. I tell you something, the people that are blessed in God are a grateful people. They're not grumblers and grousers and complainers and blamers and so forth and so on. They are grateful. They're grateful to be alive. They're grateful for the clothes they have. They're grateful for the food that they have. They're grateful for the friends they have. They're grateful for the church they belong. They're grateful for everything. They're grateful for the rain and they're grateful for the sun and they're grateful for... They're just grateful people. They're happy people because they are filled with gratitude. And they're grateful, if I can give this to you so you understand it, even when things go bad. The Bible says, in everything give thanks. See, like, oh, well, this... Man, I can't thank God for this kind of stuff. I mean, man, I don't see why you're doing this. See, see they go from, if you do good, thank you, Lord, maybe thank you. I've seen some people get the most wonderful blessing from friends, from wife, from neighbor, from husband, whatever, and they, they take it like for granted. Here's this blessing I bestow upon you. Mm. Then you say, well, shouldn't you say thanks? <laughs> I never say thanks. I just, uh, no wonder they do not have the blessing of God on their life. Thank you should be a word. On the tip of our tongue, I'm grateful. Thank you. I'm glad I know you. It's good to have you for a friend. I like I'm glad you're my father. I'm glad you're my mother. I'm glad you're my daughter. I'm glad you're my son. I'm glad you're my brother. I'm glad I'm in this church. I'm thankful to God for. See, they're grateful people, happy people as a result of it, and very thankful people. Hallelujah. That God would even pick us up is a miracle, but that he continues to live with us and care for us. They're thankful people. Now, you watch... If you could tune in to the home, 
of people that are having tremendous struggles in these areas. You know what you would hear? You would not hear what I just said. You would not hear, oh, I'm thankful to be alive. I'm thankful for God. I'm thankful for the ministry. I'm thankful for church. I'm thankful for my friends. I'm thankful for this city. I'm thankful for this house. I'm thankful for this food. That's not what you'd hear. You would hear us, I don't understand why other people have things that we don't have anything. And I tell you, that church down there is really full of this. And other preachers down there. We did it for years until we filled our house with hell. Until I got to the place where I said, no more, oh Lord. And my wife said, no more, oh Lord. We're going to be thankful, grateful, happy people. And it began to change everything that we touched as a result of that. Hallelujah. Thankful. They honor him and praise for little blessings as well. Here's the place where we can goof off pretty bad. The Bible gives a rebuke. Zechariah 4.10 said, Do not despise the day of small things. This is a place where God gives us a little thing. Here's a little blessing. Some child comes up and says, I have a picture for you, Mr. Durkin, that I made. And it's not such a hot picture. I mean, you're talking about, you know, looking at Monet or Rembrandt or something like that. But for them, they thought of, I'm going to make this for Mr. Durkin, because I love him. And they color it all in, the crayons going all outside the lines and so forth. And then they say, I love you, and maybe run off the page and something. I made this for you. See? Yeah, kid. Nice. (laughs) Thank you. Wow. Somebody loves me. You realize what a treasure that is? Somebody loves me. And not just someone, but a little child was thinking of you. And they want, couldn't wait to catch you by the back door, wherever you are, and walk up and say, I love you, Mr. Durkin, and I made this for you. See? Oh, I say, oh, I'm thankful, God. I'm thankful, I'm thankful, I'm thankful. See, and I sit down at home and I say, you know, that little so-and-so boy came up to me today and Gave me this picture. Isn't this wonderful? Oh, isn't that beautiful? We're loved. Isn't it wonderful to be loved? That's just that's what you hear in our house. You know I See, I don't know why God doesn't bless me. Man, he's afraid to come in the house. Not really, he's in there anyhow, but pretty hard to feel him, I'll tell you that. All right. Now, they honor God by their tithes and their offerings. I notice we're calling every service take an offering. That's a mistake. We should remind people, continue, and I remind you, tithes and offerings. Offerings are quite apart from tithes. So they honor God. It says here, Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, honor God from your wealth. And from the first of all your produce result, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now, there's a very important connection between tithing and genuine prosperity in every part of your life. There's no way to disconnect these things. I'm going to read here in Malachi 3, the next verse that I want to read, Malachi 3, 9 through 11. By the way, this is the same book where God speaks to the people of Israel and says, If I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect? You have not honored me. And they asked him, where, we have, where have we not honored you? And he said, You bring defiled food and put it on the altar. In other words, he told them, 
what kind of food to offer him, what kind of lamb to offer him, what kind of... And he said, the first and the best of the flock you offer to me. Then I will bless everything else that you have. And what they had been doing is finding the blemished lambs and the rotten produce and bringing it in and said, this is good enough for God, the rest of it we have to keep and eat for ourselves. God said, you are not showing me respect and honor. See, it's the way we pull oh, for God, this is plenty good. But for me, oh, I want the other way around. See, give to God the best, and if you give to God the best in the end, you'll have the best too. God will make everything that you touch be blessed. Malachi 3, 9 to 11. Read these words. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so there may be food in my house. And test me now, and this says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven, and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it may not destroy the fruits of your ground, nor will the vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord, and all nations shall call you blessed, for I will make you a delightsome land. I tell you something, our house is blessed because I know how to tithe. I make that a practice of my life, and I do not fail in that obligation before God. As a matter of fact, I tried to follow. I haven't done it perfectly yet, but I read years ago the Laterno story. Now, the Laterno story is a remarkable story. It's not for everyone, or maybe it is for everyone. It's a matter of faith. But R.G. Laterno, going on to be with the Lord now, he is a man who... Started out some 50,000 in debt in the days when 50,000 would be like 500,000 or maybe even more. $50,000 in debt, he was a, a contract, earth-moving contractor, level ground, prepared it for construction, so forth, highway builder, and also dabbled around in making earth-moving machinery. You know, he'd weld something together and he was trying to make a better, improved piece of machinery. 50,000 in debt. He understood this truth about tithing. God opened his eyes to it and he said, God, how from now on I'm going to make you my partner. I'm going to give you the first dime of every dollar. The first dime of everything that I have belongs to you, O Lord. And I am going, and then he told God the things that he was doing. I'm going to tithe and I'm going to give offerings beside that. After a period of time, he is out of the $50,000 in debt and he began to prosper very greatly. One night he was praying before God. He was prospering so greatly and he said, Lord, I'm not designed by you to be a, a basket or a dam to stop up the money, the blessing that you're giving me. He said, you bless me and I have more than I could possibly use. I'm going to now make another covenant. I'm going to give you 20% of my income. He kept on doing that over the years until he gave finally in writing. It was a contract, his great earth-moving company to manufacture the equipment that he had and all the ramifications of it. 90% of the stock was put in the Lord's name and it was given to... All of the uses of the Lord, he lived on 10%, and believe me, that 10% was more than most of us make in five lifetimes. I mean, just I want you to understand how greatly God desires to show his mighty blessing to those who will trust him and do according to his word. Tithes and offerings, honor me, God says, I will open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. There will be no room to receive it. I will rebuke the devourer. I will make you a delightsome land. I will, I will, I will, I will. See? Trust God's promises. They are real promises. When I was so in debt, I couldn't see straight. And I kept telling myself, I can't tithe, I can't afford, I have no money, I can't do it. And finally I said, man, the way you're going, you pretty soon won't be able to eat. You better start doing what God says to do. Started doing it, and immediately we started turning around, and the blessing of God has never stopped from that day until this day. And we've had some times where it looked like every cent we had was going to be wiped out. 
But always, hallelujah, the rescuer arrived, and we went on to even higher things in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just talking over some things that have been happening here lately, wonderful, miraculous things. Number four, they honor God by attendance to church on the Lord's day. That is not something they do if they don't have anything else to do. It's something they look forward to doing because it's a vital and necessary part of their Christian experience. They want to be with the brothers. They want to come and hear the preaching of God's Word. They want to receive the prayers. They want to praise God in the congregation of the people. Church is a very important part of their Christian experience. And they set aside the Lord's Day in order to go to church. They make that a real part of their experience. And not just one day. There are other experiences they have too. They also honor God by their service to His kingdom. I want to read a scripture here now. Here again. See, I'm talking about the blessing of God in prosperity. They honor God by service to His kingdom. They just don't go to church and sit there. They're not spectators in some thing. Like I'm looking back here and the preachers are doing their number and the elders are doing their number and the uh, secretary is doing hers or his. Not that. They're vitally serving in the kingdom of God also. Haggai 1, I'm going to read verses 2 through 14. Who is left among you? Haggai 1, pardon me, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, the time has not yet come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be built. Now see what they were saying, they were doing something else. Well, no, it's not time to build the Lord's house yet, time to do something else over here. Now, what is it time to do according to them? Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? In other words, their houses were well finished and paneled. Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to become satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunken. You put it, it means soused, it means well satisfied with drink. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put it into a purse with holes. I don't know how often I've heard people say that. When I hear it, it's just like I'm saying, do you know you're quoting a scripture? It's a, man, we go out and we earn this money and bring it home. It's like, it's all gone. It's, we never see any of it. I say, look carefully to your ways. Look carefully to your attitude. What is working in you that makes that money just simply go... We say, well, it's Reaganomics. No, it isn't Reaganomics. <laughs> Not Reaganomics. There are people under Reaganomics that are just prospering right along, and other people that are going broke. There are people under Carterism that were prospering, and others that were going broke. There are people in the Depression that were prospering, and others that were going broke. There are people in the 1920s that are prospering, others going broke. It isn't that. It's something internal. It's how we relate to the world around us. And here he's saying one of the things is that we think about service to God. That's something, oh, that's something the preachers do. We pay them. They do that. No, you must do that. See, is it time for you to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie desolate? The work of the Lord, not enough workers to do it. I'm very busy. I'm out here doing this. And I'm out here doing this. And I'm out here doing this. And we have to go here and we have this thing that we do. With it. Say, but what about the service of the Lord? Oh, well, no, we're not into that. See, we're into this. God says you earn wages and you bring it home and I blow on it. And instead of prospering like you really should, instead of that internal joy and happiness being there, instead of that majestic moving of God in our lives, there is like something sparse and not there that ought to be there. See? So 
look to yourselves in these things. I have to do this whenever I see anything going wrong in my life. And I want to tell you, anything going wrong in my life, I go back over these points. How about this? How about this? And I don't get very far until, uh-oh, uh-oh. Been not giving gratitude to God recently. So you've been very busy. Man, really, really busy here. Man, we're just, things are going, man. Yes, things are going. And uh, our church finally moving now. And this is happening here. And uh, Where do you think that's coming from, Jim? Oh, God. You, Lord. I give gratitude to you. And I... And then the blessing of God powerfully moves. I make sure God is honored and blessed. Now, changing points here. They are a saving investing and industrious people. Proverbs, a good man lays up a portion for his children's children. They, are not, they do not spend everything they get. They don't spend everything they get. If they get virtually nothing, they don't spend everything they get. They have a method of saving money. They adjust their living so that they're always able to save. Of course, they put away tithes, but our, my brother John Omer one time, I think, came up with a revelation from God. And he was taught, we were talking about tithes and offerings in the, uh, a Bible study we have on Thursday. And he said, oh, I see, the 90% is our 100%, the 10% belongs to God. That's right, that's a revelation, that's an insight, that's an understanding. 10% belongs to God, the 90% is my 100%, and of this 90%, which is my 100%, God will cause it to bless and greatly prosper. So we make sure that that's right. Now, of that, however, they are a saving they are an investing, they are an industrious people. Good man lays up a portion for his children's children. There are all kinds of admonitions to be industrious and warnings against being a sluggard. There's no place, if you want to prosper, for being a sluggard. The Bible talks about, oh, you sluggards, will you not awake? Will you yet turn over in your bed like a rusty hinge creaking? And you hear that, oh, I'm too tired to get up. There's a program, Hee Haw, I watch it once in a while. Good program to watch for only one thing in the program. It's those two guys that lay around, big giant guys that lay in there. You, uh, you superstitious, last, last weekend I saw, you superstitious, Joe? No, except for one superstition. What's that? I don't work on no week with a Friday in it. See? I said, boy, oh boy, that speaks the truth. Hallelujah. God wants an industrious people, sluggard, turn over, treat, 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 treat. Industrious people, dynamic people, thinking people, saving people, studying people, and they will prosper. As a, that's one of the things. They won't prosper just because of that, but that is a part of it. They are persevering and positive people. They never give up, they get up. Someone said a champion doesn't give up, he gets up. That's what makes a champion. Isn't a champion doesn't get knocked down. Bible says about the righteous, they fall seven times, but what? They rise again. See, that's what it's talking about. It isn't like they fall in sin seven times. He's talking about in a battle of life. The battle of life, sometimes you're out there in something, whether it be economic or whether it be health-wise or spiritually or whatever it is, and once in a while the devil gets in a blow and, boy, down you go and you're laid out there and you're, oh, ooh, oh, Lord, what happened? I, now you can do one of two things. Then, oh God, your servant layeth here, and he cannot rise because of the pain of that blow. God says, get up. See? Get up. You know, the thing you go to a film or something like that, you see it, some championship thing or whatever it is, or football or whatever it is. Here's the team, they're down, 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 and suddenly they rally. 
And boy, they begin playing way beyond themselves. Unbelievable what they're able to do when they get inspired. And here they're running with the ball, or the champion gets up off again, and he's beaten half silly, and he stands on his feet again. At the count of nine, he was almost out, but he wasn't out. He goes back to that corner and he rests, or he has to go back in again. He's hurt, he's bleeding, his eye is swelling, whatever the case is. But he gets back there, and he fights on again. The righteous fall seven times, but they rise up again. Champions don't give up. They get up. See, no laying around. And many times Christians become very self-pitying people. Oh, woe is me. The things that have been said to me, the things that have been said about me, and the things that have been said, and if you only knew what I'm going through. Man, man, man. Woman, woman, woman. All of us go through bad things and good things. But I want to tell you something. The prosperous man, the prosperous woman, are the one that says all things work together for good to those that love the Lord. Now this is good too. Somehow God will make it work for good. I'm going to get up and I'm going to fight on again. And they rise up and start putting one foot in front of the other. And the next thing, they're prospering. They never quit. They never quit. They don't know what it is to quit. They can't quit because God, they've made a decision to be strong and courageous and do the Word. And the Word of God admonishes us, fight the good fight of faith. Do not give up. See, do not give up. All right, next point. They are persevering and positive. The righteous fall seven times and rise again. All things work together for good. Tribulation works patience. Patience experience. Experience hope. Hope makes not ashamed. They're hopeful people because they've learned how to turn tribulation into perseverance. Tribulation doesn't stop them. Tribulation merely makes them more persevering. And the persevering gives them more experience. And the experience gives them hope. And hope makes not a shame. They're very hopeful people. They're not down in the dumps. They're not in the molly grubs. Or if they get there, they don't stay there very long. They pull themselves up and say, I'm going to praise God yet. Remember David? I will yet praise the Lord. See, and here he is down so low he can hardly get up. And he looks up and there's a snake's belly above his head. He's down there pretty low. But the next thing you I will yet praise the Lord. I will come out. Job, when he's virtually ruined, his wife said, why don't you curse God and die? He said, I will yet praise him. My eyes shall behold him and not another. I shall stand before my Redeemer at the end time. And I will. See, that's the kind. You can't stop a man like that. You can't stop a woman like that. They made a decision to be courageous. That's what we need to make decisions. Failures by their nature blame others for their failure. They constantly murmur and complain or spend their time on blaming others or circumstances. Every time, I pointed out many times the brothers that are on their road to success, sisters as well, and I'll listen to a person talk, and they made a mistake, clearly. Somebody might have done something to them or they made a mistake, but they never get up and say, I goofed up here. Or I simply made a stupid decision. Or looking back on it, that was a wrong decision. They don't say, I'm a failure, I'm rotten, and I'm no... Although sometimes they even say stuff like that. Oh, I'm just no good, I can't... That's not true either. You're not a failure. God is in you. God is living in you. And God doesn't make any junk. You're not junk. You're powerful in God. You can do whatever Christ has told you to do. But failures all have this habit of blaming others for their own circumstances. See? The thing that brought me out of part of the trouble that I was in, I mean, one of the things that brought me out, was God gave me four little things or five little things, one of which was, henceforth I blame no one for where I am. The Bible warns against murmuring and complaining. Moses, it's your fault that we're out here in the wilderness. Moses, you're the one who's done us in. Moses, it's your policies what you're doing. Joshua, we feel that you are. We feel, God, you're not... See, murmurs and complainers 
I said, henceforth, I blame no one for where I am. I'm here by the result of my own decisions and nobody else's. And if I want to get out of here, I'll start making different decisions and that will bring me out. It isn't that person's fault that I'm here. Maybe what they did is wrong. See, Joseph, same way. When he first went down to Egypt, thrown in that pit, I'm sure maybe one of the things he said, I blame my brothers. They did this to me, these rotten brothers. They did this to me, or maybe my father didn't take care of me right, or my mother should have done this, or look at what I'm doing. Oh, why am I suffering these things? But as he went along, he began to take hold on the word of God. And when he gets over here and he's second in the empire of Egypt, his brothers come before him. He could have slaughtered them, put them in jail. He could have destroyed them. They say, oh, we're so sorry that we've done this. We see we're wrong. Please don't kill us. Please don't hurt us. Please. Joseph says, brothers, 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 stop. He said, don't blame yourselves. It wasn't you who sent me here. It was God who sent me here before you to preserve life. Think of the power of that man's revelation. No longer is he blaming anybody. At the same time, he's a tremendous success. been pondering this last period of time that I've been gone what it is that God wants for his people. In other words, he's a father. He makes that point again and again. And he has as a father, same as I am a father, and I recognize that on a smaller level with my own children or like being related to you in a ministry way. I have desires for you that you will be blessed and raised up and your lives will be fulfilled. But whatever I can experience as a human in a little way, or you can experience as a human in relation to your children or so forth, the good benevolent desires you have for them, how much greater is the heart of God beating with desire for his people that they will experience and receive in their lives all of the things that he has prepared for them. Remember, Jesus speaks about this. Inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world by my Father. See, that's a future thing. But what are the desires of God for you right here, right now, right on this earth, that he wants you to experience, and how important are they to him? Well, they're tremendously important to him, because his fulfillment in a certain sense, although he's always fulfilled. But when anyone has a yearning of love, or a yearning of desire for someone's benefit and good, there's a certain sense in which that love is never fulfilled until that person comes to experience that benefit or that good. So now I'd like you to all pray with me this morning as I bring this message. Heavenly Father, I pray in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. You help me this morning to speak in such a way that your people are able to grasp your word, understand it, walk in it, Lord. Bless now this preaching. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I entitled this message, God Desires for His People These Things. And I'm going to state what these are in a few moments, but I have to preface this by saying that these things are meaningless, really, that I'm going to speak about if they're out of context with this preface. So listen carefully to what I have to say. Now this is, for many of you, it's something you've heard before. You need to have it refreshed in your mind. For those of you that are new in the Lord, vitally important that you get this right understanding in the beginning. I'm going to relate the concept of purpose and vision, just as a quick thing, but without that, the rest of the message is really rather meaningless, and it will be distorted in your mind 
unless you understand that purpose and vision. Because the content of the message must be understood in terms of that concept. Now, what concept? The concept that God has determined upon his creation that a purpose of his should be fulfilled in them. And that purpose is that they should glorify him and love him with all of their soul, heart, mind, and strength. And that they should love their neighbor as themselves. That's a secondary commandment. But I put it in here because Jesus linked them together. But standing by itself in the Old Testament, God lays down the beginning purpose. God should be glorified and that God should be loved. With our whole heart, that means all of it, our whole mind, all of it, whole soul, strength, physical energy and power. That is centered upon him. Now, without that basic commitment as a supremely right starting point, and I say over the years I've talked with many Christians who have found themselves in great difficulty emotionally, mentally, spiritually, financially, and in virtually every case, they either had never understood that and therefore never made a real personal commitment to that concept, or they had left it behind and they went on to go back to be self-centered again. Now, the reason for that concept of purpose is man is not meant to be centered on himself. He's not meant to be centered only on his own things. He's meant to be centered in some different place of which his own things then fall into a right perspective and the preservation of himself or the enhancement of himself has a place, but it's only a secondary thing. The primary thing is that God should be the center of all of his thinking and activity and life. Now let me read what I've written here. That purpose then should be a knowledgeable, now especially to those of you that are new, but those of you that have walked in the Lord for some years. Weigh this. Is this still the same thing with you? For me there is a renewing and a replacement of those thought patterns of my own. Because the world is constantly pulling on me to move over to some other place. There is constantly a renewing of the placing of my love upon the Lord. Because without that, it will move to some other place. I must know what the love of God is. I must know what it means that he is the center of my existence or my life or my thought patterns. He is the purpose. A knowledgeable, thoughtful, deliberate and personal commitment to that purpose. A personal commitment. Lord, to you, I recognize that you are the sovereign of the universe. I recognize that you are my creator. I recognize that you are my sustainer. And I am placing you as the center of my life, the focus upon which all my life shall move toward. Now that must be renewed. Because I say, Satan is constantly battling to get us to move away from that. And after a time, we can as a people, though we know these things, remember what Peter said, though you know them, I know that it's fit as long as I'm in this body to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, because we go away from those things. Once you knew them, then we end up over here. And I say the problems that we've dealt with in marriages are when people stop concentrating on God as the purpose, and they begin concentrating on themselves as the purpose, and then they begin demanding out of marriage that which marriage can never give. 
I demand, you must, I have a right to, this is what, and then if you don't give this to me, then I will leave you and I will go find someone else who I hope will give me all these things that I want. But it is backwards, and therefore it can never succeed. Now, God wants our marriages to be fruitful. He wants them to be happy. He wants them to be a glorious experience on the life that when we're finished, we can look back on that life and say, that was a good man, a good woman, a good marriage. Good children came from that. God blessed us and prospered us and helped us to be all that the Bible says we were to be. It was a good thing to be alive on this earth. And yet I tell you, more and more people today are finding that they cannot say that. They cannot say that about not only one marriage, but two marriages, five marriages, and they still can't find someone that meets their need. The reason is they've got the wrong starting place. The starting place is not my need. The starting place is the purpose of God. And therefore, we set our hearts on that particular purpose. A personal commitment to that purpose is supremely right and practical covenant choice. This reverses the earthly pattern of I, me, my, mine is the chief concern. It makes God the center of the universe. It makes the words of Jesus real when he said, I came to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, I didn't come down here while well, I'm here, and uh, now I have a right to this, and I said what I want to do in my life, and here's what I desire to be, and I'm going to, here's my ambition, and now I will. He said, I came to do the will of my Father. Therefore, his praises are sung throughout every land on the face of this earth because he made the right covenant choice. Now, the second part is, without this first step, all the rest of the truth from God's word will not really work for anyone. It will only produce questionings and frustration, such as it never worked for me or God doesn't answer my prayers here, or what most people do is, why God? Why has this not worked for me? Now, purpose that. Vision. Committing our lives to carry out his purpose on this earth means that concentration on covenant life together so that we truly love one another so much that the world can see this, that we can see it. Like this little child I was speaking about today, she's going to grow up. She doesn't know anything about the love of God in some knowledgeable sense. She doesn't know anything about the love of the brethren. She can't even define. She's just a baby, six weeks old. But at some point, her intellectual capacity will enlarge itself. She'll begin to understand concepts. Love will be a concept deep within her heart and in her mind. And she'll begin looking for examples of that love. Now, therefore, it's vitally important that she finds in that unity, in that covenant, that relationship, that love of God and love of the brethren that we have, that she's able to look around and say, I see it in my father. I see it in my mother. I see it in the brethren. I see it in my family, whatever family that shall be. I see it. It's a real thing. Not just something I have a longing in my heart. I am experiencing it from the time I'm able to understand throughout all of my life. So that oneness, that covenant relationship, vitally important to have a knowledgeable relationship with your brothers and sisters in that area. For our children's sake, if for nothing else. But really for God's sake above all. Second thing, we cannot afford to keep this wonderful good news that we have, and that's why we took this offering up this morning, but the offering is a small thing. I think of the many offerings of brothers and sisters that we sent out to other cities and to other lands to take the good news of Jesus Christ. They came here or came to some other church and found Jesus Christ to be real. Maybe they'd heard about him with the hearing of the ear, or, but they'd never known about him really. 
And then they experienced him and knew him to be their Savior. Their sins were forgiven. Their lives were transformed. A new experience had come to them. Joy replaced the sadness and the sorrow and the frustration and confusion. They found a family. Spiritual family. Already had an earthly family, of course. Now then, that basic experience that we've experienced, we cannot according to the Word of God, because Jesus said, now go into all the world and preach the good news to every creature. But we cannot keep this to ourselves. We can't keep it to ourselves in this tent. We have to go to the rest of this city, which we are doing, thank God. Nor can we keep it to ourselves in this county. We have to spread the good news. Nor can we keep it to ourselves in the state or the nation. Only the ends of the earth, Jesus said. From the rising of the sun to the going down thereof, my name is to be great so that men will come to the same experience we have. People that today are laboring in pain and heartache and sickness and sadness, sorrows, and no hope for them. But there is hope in Jesus Christ. There is hope in God. Now see, that is all fundamental to the desires of God being fulfilled in our lives. If that fundamental attitude is not there that I'm speaking about, and then the third part of it, we're to manifest the life of Jesus Christ. I'll talk about that. You'll see how these things completely fit. The Word of God is a totally cohesive book. No contradictions in it. No parts that don't belong. No parts that are trivial. Every part belongs and very vital to an understanding of the whole part and plan of God in your life. So we have to manifest the life of Jesus Christ. Now, here, Jesus took care of the little children. Suffer the little children to come unto me. Where I'm an older man, my children are grown. I have grandchildren, of course. But I can say, children, I'm not, in, I'm not into children. I mean, that's uh, for young parents to take care of. I'm, I'm not into that. Well, thank God Jesus wasn't married, didn't have any natural children. But you know the one thing he understood? Children are the heritage of the Lord. Hallelujah. And he says, suffer the little children to come unto me. And he blessed them. We must make sure that we are a blessing to children everywhere. It's the manifestation of the life of Jesus Christ. That's the way his heart and nature and life were. He blessed everybody that he touched. People could never respond or give anything back to him. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cleansed the lepers, and to all of us, he died on the cross of Calvary and took our sins upon himself, and thus brought us deliverance. Now, we must be the same kind of people. We must be manifesting the nature and that unselfish life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, see, if that is done knowledgeably, then the basic attitudes are right for what God wants to do for us. And sometimes I see some of God's people, some of them rightly going through a trial of some kind, and that's a different kind of thing. There we comfort and strengthen and help. But some people I know are struggling with certain areas of their life and finding no blessing in an area that is clearly stated by God that he wants to bless them in that area of their life, and they simply are not being blessed in that area. And you sit down with them and talk to them for a few minutes, and you'll find out why. They have somehow got back on that totally self-centered point of view, and that's their thinking. I, me, my, mine, I must have this, you must do this, I demand this, I have a right to you. They, instead of, well, where are you when you're thinking about God? God, I can't even think about God. The only thing I can think about, and then they're right back on that self-centered plane again. Now, they're still saved. They know the Lord Jesus Christ. Their sins are forgiven. But they're not enjoying the experience of God's constant provision and love in the way that they should. And that's always a great pain to me to see that. Now I want to get on to then what God desires for us. Like you 
in just a moment. Turn your Bibles to 3 John 2. I hope what I'm going to say here is you're going to be relating this, and I'm going to help you to relate back to what I've just laid down here, purpose and vision. Because the rest of this taken apart from that concept can just simply turn us into really unbalanced people, out of perspective. These things, the purpose and vision, therefore, must be the overall base by which our decisions are made. Everything in my life, I relate it to that. Is this for the glory of God? Does this express my love to Him? Then if it doesn't, I say, I don't want to do that. They will say, well, what if it doesn't glorify God and it doesn't express your love, it doesn't hurt anybody? I'm saying for myself, I don't want to do it. See, it's just, it's a waste of my time to get involved in that when there are so many joyful, peaceful, happy, fulfilling things that I can do which do express things to the glory of God and do express my love toward Him that I don't want to be involved in things which do not do that. All right. Now, Third John 2. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Now, I've struggled these last two years watching some of God's people go through monumental struggles financially, go through monumental struggles health-wise that were not the result of a, like a true disease. I remember many years ago, taking example not necessarily here, as a matter of fact, it was 30 years ago, I saw a man worry himself got himself heavily in debt, contrary to the teaching of Scripture. Finally, the economy turned down at that particular time. It wasn't a permanent turn down, temporary. lasted a couple of years. And he couldn't meet his bills, couldn't make his house payments. Finally, everything was on the block, and that man literally worried himself into a sickbed. And the man kept saying, I've got to get up and work, because if I don't work, I'll lose everything I have. And the more he worried about, the sicker he got. And he couldn't get up and work. And he lost many things. You know, I've seen this same thing repeated in many people's lives, not understanding all the time God wants to prosper them. Here's John, apostle of God, beloved, one who lay on Jesus' shoulder, rested his head there, made a very close relationship with Jesus. And this is the one that understood the heart of the Lord, and he said, I'm praying in all respects that you may prosper, you may be in health, even as your soul prospers. See, that's what God wants for our life. Now, put it in terms that maybe not so spiritual, is saying he wants us to prosper materially. So there's a, a blessedness. Now, not get rich, not be poor. I'll speak about that in a minute. He wants us to be in health. And he wants our souls to prosper. So that spiritually we are prosperous. So that physically we are prosperous. So that materially we are prosperous. Why? So that we can carry out the purpose of God. The purpose of expressing the nature of God in this earth. See, rarely am I able to express the nature of God if I have my headaches so that I can't think straight, my stomach hurts all the time, my back is killing me. Now, I'm going to express the nature of God. Oh, my aching back. Oh, my head. Oh, my stomach. Oh, would to God that I were dead. See, now, that does not express the love of God. Now then, on the same token, the question of prosperity. God wants us to prosper. Now, not get rich. He has many serious things to say about men who would try to be rich. And he warns of the great dangers of that. That you can be caught with many temptations and snagged and your life ruined. But I say this too. God has nothing good to say about being poor. He has many good things to say about poor people. 
that they should be loved or honored or protected or helped, that we're not to oppress them or rob them or hurt them in any way, but that we should take care of the lame, the maimed, the halt, the blind. In other words, the attitude toward the poor is to help them. But God has nothing good to say about being poor. Matter of fact, the Bible speaks of it as a curse. And he wants us to get that curse off of our back and show others how to get that curse off their back. When I see these pictures overseas, I thank God that we're able to give offerings. See children with bloated stomachs and mothers that are emaciated and fathers that have died or countries where plague is broken out and their health is destroyed and whole tribes are wiped out. That grieves my heart as it must grieve the heart of God. That is not what God wants for this earth. It's the greed of men, the oppression of men that have made those kinds of things take place. Our place is to relieve that wherever we possibly can and help in any way that we possibly can. But in order to be a help, we must be prosperous. If we ourselves are poor, then there's no way to help anyone else who is poor. We can only commiserate with them and say, oh God, come quickly or take us to heaven or someday in heaven it'll be better. But God says, I want you to prosper here. I want you to prosper so that you'll be a channel of blessing to those who need to prosper. I was blessed greatly by the brother Maurice Sarao from Kenya, Africa, when he said, will you come over to our country and teach us how to prosper? He said, we want to be able to send out missionaries as you have done. He said, we even want to send missionaries to the United States, and we want to support them. See, now the traditional idea of Africa or India or Asia or many other places, we are a poor country, give us money, United States. This man is catching something from God's Word. He says, I read from God's Word that God wants us to prosper in Africa. Well, that's it, right. This isn't a United States book. This is a book to all men everywhere. See? So he's reading, God wants us to prosper. Now, he can take the attitude that is traditional. Africa is a poor country. See? And India is a poor country. Asia is a poor country. But I say, if these principles are practiced there, the full counsel of God, then they will prosper there. And the president has said to him, do something with this. You believe this? Do it. Well, I, I want to help that man. And we want to help that man the best that we possibly can, that they also may prosper there. The next thing, be raising up missionaries, sending them all over Africa and other parts of the world. We want to see that. Now, that's God's desire. Now, I want to tell you why prosperity and not riches. We say, well, man, it wouldn't, wouldn't riches even be better? No. I'll tell you why riches wouldn't be better. To get rich... You have to be thinking about money all the time. And I want to tell you that God doesn't want you thinking about money all the time. The love of money is the root of many kinds of evil. So a rich man, not a man who has become rich, but one who is, I'm going to be rich. So he's aiming at that, and he's thinking about money all the time. That's all he thinks about. wonder how I can get money. wonder how I can get more money. wonder how I can get a lot more money. wonder how I can get see, all the money. See, that's constantly, all right. Now, therefore, his, since his mind is on that kind of thinking, the Bible says he is open to many snares and hurtful lusts which drown men in perdition and destruction. So, that's not our aim. Now, on the other hand, why God doesn't want men to be poor, I can tell you that the only thing you think about when you're poor is money. But from a different point of view. Where are we going to get money to pay the rent? How are we going to get money to eat? How are we going to get money for clothes? How are we going to get money for these tires? How are we going to get money? See, once again, constantly thinking about that. So this man is off balance trying to be rich because that's all he thinks about, and the poor person is forced off balance by the poverty of a situation. But when a man has practiced the principles of God's Word and comes to that place of prosperity, then he is able to be a channel of blessing 
His mind is not concentrating on money beyond a very just a part of his life, and he thinks about it. He goes out and earns it, and that's it. Then he's able to give to the poor. He's able to bless his family. He's able to bless the work of God. He's able to, and still the Bible says he'll have a portion, an inheritance. He'll leave for his children and his children's children. See? Now, that's what God wants for our lives. But that will not be what happens to the majority of men and women unless the purpose is clear. I want your glory, O Lord, because when we begin to get money, then we forget. Remember like the man in the book of Proverbs? That do not give me riches, lest I forget and say, Who is God? Or poverty, lest I steal and blaspheme thy name. See, that in-between place is the right place. Then if you have prosperity with contentment, you are wide open to do the work of God with great joy. You become a channel of blessing in every direction. Now, the second thing is, God wants us to be in health. Now, he doesn't want us to be health nuts. There are some people that are health nuts. And once again, the reason for it, that's all they ever think about, health. Wonder what condition my liver's in. I've got to take some kind of pills that will help my liver. And then my muscles. I must build those up so that they will be very powerful. And then I must uh, think about this, and I must think about that, and I must, and they're constantly at sit down and, uh, how's your health today? I mean, you should be fit or fat, or what's the thing? Then back and forth, see? And they just, you know. All right, now, this is a wrong concept also, because you're, once again, concentrating on something that at best is of transitory value. It is important to be healthy. It is not important to be Charles Atlas or the Hulk or... You'll need to be those things. So there's no point beyond a certain place where you say, thank God I've got a healthy body and a healthy mind and I can work for him and I can bless my family and I can enjoy life. That's what God wants, that in-between place. Now, he doesn't want you sick. Because if you're sick, you're not thinking about, oh, I'm going to go out and do the work of God, and I'm so happy to be alive. It's like, oh, God, it's night. Would that it were morning. Well, the morning, would that it were night. And then, oh, God, will you not take me home? I See, it's not a good place to be sick. So God doesn't have anything good to say about being sick. That's why Jesus, partly his dying on the cross, was that we might be well. See? And that's why prayer for the sick. And he's sick among you. And call for the elders of the church. Pray over them, anointing them with oil. The prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise them up. God wants us well, not sick. Then the third thing about spirituality, and that's one of the trickiest of all. You know, if a person says, well, doesn't God want you as spiritual as you can possibly be? True spirituality, yes. But what he's referring to here when he says he wants you to prosper spiritually, even as your soul prospers, he's talking about a basic, fundamental way of looking at life. Now, some people, their ideas of spirituality are like, what do people think about me? Am I spiritual? So you have an example there where Jesus rebuked them for their unspiritualness, yet people outwardly looking at them said they're very spiritual. And they were the people at a trumpet. They had a person go before them, blow a trumpet, and then they would announce, here comes Rabbi Ben Ezra, and he's going to give offerings. Then Rabbi Ben Ezra would walk up with his offerings, whatever he had, and very ostentatiously he would sprinkle them into the treasury of the Lord. And the people say, oh, how spiritual. Or he'd be praying and he'd say, thank God I am not like this publican or this sinner, but you have, and he wouldn't even let anyone touch him. See? Now, many people fall into this kind of spirituality. Or they fall into an even worse kind, and that is they go through life with their eyes raised up to heaven, floating four feet off the ground. But they're not floating four feet off the ground. They're walking through mud puddles and cracking their head. But they're, I'm so spiritual, so spiritual, so spiritual. See, and they, God doesn't want people like that. Spiritual to him is related to him. You have a relationship with him. 
Spiritual means related to my brethren, that I care for them, that I'm a sensible, knowledgeable man, and here you are, and I love you, and I know you, and I'm glad to be alive and glad to be with you, and isn't it wonderful? What can we do for the Lord? What can I do for you? What can you... See, there's a blessed interchange. That's spirituality, but not walking around in a white robe or gesturing or making ceremonies or something like that, but hearts that are set on loving God with all of their heart, soul, mind, strength. That's spirituality. Now, there's a basic attitude that lets us have all of these things in abundance. But that basic attitude has to be there, and it's an attitude of doing the Word of God, not an attitude of believing the Word of God. All kinds of people believe, and the Bible even says that devils believe and tremble. But what's wrong with the devils, why they're devils, is they don't do the Word of God. See, they say, well, I believe that because they know it's true. I mean, they know God exists, and they see the spiritual realm, and they know everything is going to happen in the next world, and they tremble, but they won't change. Now, the Lord, where we have been blessed, is that we have made a measure of change, and some of it's tremendous change. Others are producing. Those changes are being produced in our lives. We've been saved, and now we're starting to move toward that direction. But why are the blessings withheld from some people who should have them? Because basically they have a wrong attitude that do not let those blessings flow in their life. Now let me tell you what that attitude is. Turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. And here again we have an expression of something that is to be done. See, I need something working in me. By nature, I was, and left to myself, would become again a very impatient person. Impatient with others? I'm not so impatient with myself. I tend to be very patient and say, oh, Jim, if only people understand you, then they... But when someone else doesn't do what I want, how come you, they, we cannot tolerate this kind of nonsense and you must do this? But true patience is not based on a feeling. It becomes a feeling. It is based on an action. Now, I told you that the Israelites, when they thought about any of these traits, they never thought about what you felt like. That's a Greek concept. That's a Western concept. I feel patient. Therefore, maybe I am patient. The Jew, the Israelite, the Hebrew understood patience to be, I act patient, no matter what I feel like. My stomach may be trembling inside, or there may be anger there, or I'm frustrated, or I'm insulted in some way or something at something someone has done, or they've let me down according to my idea of what should be, and I'm maybe just, uh, but I, and I, Cool off, Jeff. Now you speak properly to this person and try to help them to do what they need to do. Now, you say, well, this, this, and this, and this, and this. And you acted patiently. You acted out patience. Well, you know what happens? See, he says, that's why this love is called covenant love. It's the expression of covenant love. When I act out patience in time, not right away, but in time, the feelings of patience. I am retraining that soul level, which is very impatient, like this jungle chimpanzee jumping through trees in a forest somewhere. They're just moving up and down, and this and so uncontrollable. It may know where it's going, but no one else knows where it's going. And the same thing with ourselves. We may think, well, I know what I'm doing. I've heard many people, I know exactly what I'm doing. But I look at their life. I say, you do? And you planned this mess you're in? See, I mean, it makes no sense at all. You know, they say, no, I know what I'm doing. Okay. Now... Bible says love is patient. Well, when I act out patience toward the world, toward my family, even toward the dealings of God, I can see that Abraham 
I'm sure there were times when God promises you you're going to have a child of your own loins and Sarah, and for 25 years he doesn't see that. I can't imagine that all that time he felt patient. He said, I know God is truth. I know. Therefore, I will be patient. And in the being patient, by action, he ultimately became patient in fact. See, now that's the, that's the retraining of the soul. I will act out what the truth is. All right, now it says love is patient. Love is kind. When my wife and I got back together, been separated for three years, I didn't feel particularly kind even. I didn't feel unkind at that point. We were ready to get back together. I didn't feel particularly kind. But what I learned from the Word of God is to be kind, is to be patient with my wife, is to not be jealous, is to not brag, not be arrogant, not overwhelm her with the majesty of my presence. Do you see this glorious husband that you are married to? And I want you to constantly feed my ego and tell me how wonderful. Nobody can do that for long, you know. You know, my wife can say, Katie, that's a wonderful message, honey. I really appreciate it. Oh, yes, tell me more. Well, uh, I don't know what else to say. I mean, it was good. Well, uh, tell me, did you like my voice tones? Tell me, did you like the face of that? And pretty soon she got, hmm, I wish I'd never said that, see? All right. Now, there's a point where we can put upon people more than they can ever produce. So, the Bible says love doesn't do that. It doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't put heavy demands upon people that they can't meet. Now, the marvelous thing is, as we act out that, pretty soon our soul is retrained, and we don't want to do that to people. We're very careful about their feelings, and very careful about their presence, and very careful about what is right, and very careful about our relationships with them. So we walk in such a way that kindness is the order of the day, mercy is the order of the day, gentleness is the order of the day, joy is the order of the day, peace is the order of the day, instead of getting my way. That is not the order of the day. All right. Now you see, when each of those things are practiced, that attitude comes within us that is one of kindness and gentleness and mercy. The soul, in beginning to reflect those attitudes that are in line with what God wants for our lives, our health springs forth speedily. You know, it's always an amazing thing to me that there are people, someone can sneeze in a room, and they're a hundred feet away. It's like a big auditorium. They're a hundred feet away, and this person sneezes in a room, and two minutes later, this person has a violent cold down at the other end. And then another person could be right close, and a person sneezes, and it's almost like they get a great deal of that breath that came out of the person. Don't get any cold at all. Or another person, a draft hits their feet and say, oh, a draft hit my feet, I'm going to have a cold. Another person's out there in the rain, all soaked and wet and uh, blowing and so forth, and so comes in, shakes themselves, gets dry, walks on, no troubles, whatever. Well, I'll tell you, in most cases, you watch the attitude of the person who doesn't get the sickness and the attitude of the person who does. The attitude many times of the person who does is self-centered, worrisome, I mean, they're worried all the time. Oh, I'm worried about this. I'm worried about this. No, oh, man, oh, things that are happening to me and all oh, my problems are going to troubles that I have. And their attitudes are such that they're wide open for any kind of sickness and trouble. They literally worry themselves into sickness. Now, another person said, praise God, the Lord's taking care of me. Hallelujah. And I'm going to be okay. And isn't it wonderful to be alive? And I just so wonderful. And I'm kind to this person and gentle and merciful. I tell you, they can stand under the Niagara Falls in the middle of winter. And outside of getting wet, that's all. See? Now, so we come down to the end of what we're saying here is this, that God has a desire for his people. And that desire is that they be effective workers in his kingdom. He desires that your family, your children will grow up to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. 
He desires that they will grow up to be powerful workers in the kingdom. He desires that your life will be so oriented that you will leave a portion to your children as a sign of your wise behavior, and they will see how wisely you've lived and what you have done to prosper, and your children will look at that and say, oh, I see what mom and dad did. I see how they ordered their life. I see how they budgeted themselves. I see how they had plenty to give to God and how they had plenty to give to people who were in need, and yet they were able to save and prepare for their old age and yet leave an inheritance for me, and not only for me, but also for my children. I want to live that way. So you lay down an example then of blessing to generations that are coming along at that particular time. Now, the same thing about the health. When we are truly in that attitude that I'm speaking about, we are healthy individuals. Well, then if God calls me to go to some place, wherever that country may be, or whatever the struggle is, I'd say, oh, I better not go because I'm so sick. Or I can't go there because I have no money. Or I can't go there because I have to think of my spiritual image. If I go there, what will people think about me? Well, the question is, what does God think about us? Have we made that relationship with him? Father, I want to carry out your purpose on this earth. I want to make sure that from the best of my ability, I love you with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. I want to orient my life in terms of that vision and that purpose. I really want to work with my brethren to be one with them and to love them and care for them and for them to know that and for the world to see that. I want that to be real. The second thing, Lord, I want to be able to take this good news that has blessed my life and changed me when I was a lost sinner. My life destroyed. You saved me. You delivered me a second time when my family was destroyed and my wife and I were separated. You put us back together again. You saved all my children. You've given us health and blessing on every hand. I want to tell people about that. I want to tell people about God. I want to tell them about you, Lord. I want to tell them about Jesus and his salvation. I want the world to know that. See, that's the going with the gospel. And I want to manifest this life. I want to live in such a way that people can say he lived a good life. My wife wants to live in such a way that people say she lived a good life. I want that to be passed on to you. I want my children to live that way because of a good example. Now, if that's our heart, if that's our desire, then I tell you, God will open the window of heaven. He will prosper you if you do what the Word teaches. If any person wants to prosper, I was talking to someone just a few days ago about the subject of prosperity. And they were asking me, he said, well, how do you prosper? How do you get money? So that's the question he asked me. He said, I need money. How do I get money? I said, you're asking the wrong question. Well, what's the right question? If I don't have any money, seems to me the right question. How do I get money? I said, no, that's the wrong question. The question is, how can I serve? What can I do? What do I know? What is my skill? What is my ability? How can I serve? Can I create a package that will meet the need of some other human and preferably the largest group of humans possible? See? All right, so a man wants to think about a business. He shouldn't sit down and say, I wonder what business I go in to make money. The first thing you ought to say, what has God given to me that I'm gifted in? Now, Does the world need that? Do people need that? Does somebody in the community need that? Is that something that is a bona fide service that I can render? And then you sit down and you think about how can I hone that service sharp to serve the community in the best possible way that I can? How can I give that to the greatest number of people that I possibly can? In other words, you're constantly thinking about how can I give of myself? And then when you've thought about that, giving, then you say, what is a fair price to ask in exchange for this that I'm going to give of myself? Well, so much an hour, or so much a day, or so much a job, or so much... That's a secondary question. Then if you get out there, 
and you offer to give this to people in a diligent way, and then after they say, well, that sounds great to me, I certainly need that work, and I'm willing to give you this amount of money that you ask, you get in there and you do a good job, the best job that you're capable of, and you satisfy that customer no matter how many times you have to go back until they say, you did a good job, you kept your word, I like what you do, and I'm going to tell everybody about what you're doing. Now, I want to tell you, my friends, you will prosper. You will prosper so much that you will not find room to receive it. But if you start the other way around, now the same thing is true with health. If you're concentrating on my health, my health, my health, my health, my health. If you will concentrate on the right attitude, an attitude of love and kindness and gentleness and mercy, and how to express that covenant relationship with your brothers, the Bible says his health will spring forth speedily. Now there, the principle. See, start at the point where God says to start. And then the spiritual matter, don't start at looking spiritual. It's a hard thing for me to deal with people that look spiritual. They just drive me up a wall. I want a person who is spiritual. I want somebody that sees a little child fall and hurt its knee. Stop and pick it up and say, can I help you? See? Or a widow that's in trouble. Or a man that is hurt. Or a family that is ruined. To step into the middle of that thing and work out the problem. Next thing, the like Job, he said, I have blessed many. That's what we want to be. Do that, and I guarantee you something, you will be spiritual. You will be spiritual. Hallelujah. I want of you to bow your head with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that what we are looking for in our lives, Lord, is never anything of centering on ourselves, for all such self-centering, Lord, in the end, only produces frustration and heartache. And the very things that we desire most of all flee the farthest away from us. But Lord, when our heart's desire is that we shall serve you, when our heart's desire is that we shall put you first, when, Lord, we've made that knowledgeable, practical commitment to you, and then everything we do in life is based on that covenant with you, the direction of our lives, the acts of our lives, that we carry out with our brothers and sisters what in the world, what you've called us to do, then, Lord, your greatest desire that we shall be a channel of blessing in every way will be fulfilled. You'll give us the money by which we may bless many. And you will give us the strength and the health by which we may go to many and help them. And, Lord, you'll cause us to be truly spiritual people in a sense of filled with the love of God. Grant this to us, Father, and never let us be caught up with the outward things, but let us be caught up with the real things that count, and then the outward things will take care of themselves. Heavenly Father, bless these people, and bless the Word here. And I pray also, Lord, that you bless the people that have come up from San Francisco to bless us, we ask that you also bless them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah.